Hello, everyone. I'm Terry Lee Chandler, host of Terry Talks Movies. Thank you so much for being here. Now, for those of you who are familiar with me, you know that independent film is near and dear to my heart. So joining me today is independent filmmaker extraordinaire, Brian Shackelford. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm so glad to have you. And, you know, I mm -hmm. want to say to the audience that anyone who hasn't heard your name yet, trust me, they will. Just to give oh, you a little you. bit of a background, Brian is a Hollywood veteran. He graduated from Loyola Marymount University Film School in California, and he's the founder of Tunnel Vision Films, that's Vision with a Z, and Tunnel Vision specializes in taking film and television projects from concept to creation. Now, Brian, as I said, mm -hmm. you are a Hollywood veteran. You have quite a distinguished career. Your <laughs> list of projects, I mean, is extensive, not to mention impressive. Mm -hmm. So. Give our listeners a quick overview. Well, I, as you said, um, I went to Loyola um, Marymount um, Film School. And one of the biggest things uh, about going to film school for me was that I actually had a chance to work on a lot of film sets while I was in film school. Because at that time, um, major productions were coming to um, film schools to find college students because we would work for free, but we would sometimes also get uh, course credit for it. So I had a chance to work in a lot of different um, departments. I think I've almost worked in every department on a film set, maybe um, not electrical. But the, the greatest thing about that, it, it gives you an overall view of how productions work and how every department um, interacts. And then the biggest thing is, because my focus in film school was directing, I actually worked on a music video. Um, it was for the movie, The Street Fighter. Um, it was for the soundtrack of that. And the director of that at the time was Francis Lawrence. Francis Lawrence now has directed The Hunger Games. Um, uh, he's, um, he's, just, he's a very, very big director in Hollywood. But at the time, he was just doing music videos. And he found out that I was in the directing track as well. And I was just a PA on the set. And I'll never, never, never forget this. Every day he would see me, he would tell me to put down what I was doing and come over behind the camera and look into the lens and tell him what I saw. And then he would explain to me what his vision for the day was and what he would do. I mean, it was one of those things that the fact that he took the time to do that, but as a director, and this is the track that you're going to uh, go on, he was just asking what I would see and just, just uh, talk about the visuals. And that just really, I mean, I'll... I'll never forget that I'm indebted to this day, but it was also one of the things that confirmed what I wanted to do um, directing. But actually getting into the business, one of the best um, decisions that I made, and we were um, having this discussion earlier, was to get my projects done. I had to learn how to edit because I didn't have the money to um, pay for an editor. And it was very different because um, when I was in film school, we learned how to cut on old school movieolas. Like we were cutting 16 millimeter, actually, I started cutting 8 millimeter film and then cut, went up to 16 millimeter film. So when your piece of film snapped and shot past your head, that shot is gone. Like you got to figure out how am I going to tell my story without that piece? You can't go back and shoot it, it's, it's gone. So when I crossed over um, into learning uh, nonlinear editing now, it was uh, just a, like I said, it was taking, uh, taking the, uh, the pill that Neo took in the Matrix. It just freed your mind because there's unlimited possibilities. You can start anywhere. The footage is always backed up. And um, again, I got into this just to be able to get my projects done. 
but found a passion for it. And honestly, I was probably into my third editing job in Hollywood where I realized like, oh, um, I can make some money doing this editing thing. Because for me, editing has made me such a better storyteller, a better director. There are a lot of directors that will shoot things and they'll never come and sit in the editing room until it's done. They'll send some notes. But for me, with a editing background, I've already edited everything that I'm about to go shoot. So I break it down into those pieces. And what I call, I always tell talent that I'm going to save your performance for the areas where I actually know I'm going to use it. So if there's a scene where we're crying and it's a real emotional um, argument or maybe two characters are really going at it, I've already cut the scene. So I know that I'm not going to be into where you guys are really at the peak of your emotion to this point. So I'm not going to shoot it for every angle and have you go there 30 times. I only need you to go there maybe three. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you would highly recommend that people in the film industry or maybe TV or, you know, something Mm -hmm. visual should study editing. Um, Definitely. No, I would recommend, uh, recommend that even if it's not a study editing, I would always recommend maybe, uh, taking a day where you sit in um, with an editor because that that's a lot of editors allow that to uh, go on. There's so many things that you can look on in. Uh, I'm going to watch on YouTube because it's really about um, studying the craft. It's another tool that you can put in your tool belt. You can never, as a especially as an independent filmmaker, you can never have enough tools in your tool belt because trust me, there's going to be a situation where the one tool that you have doesn't get the job done. You need to be able to switch over to this second or third, even fourth tool and pull it out and move on as if you were prepared for this, uh, prepared for this to happen. It's just like being a director. Directors, we study also acting. Not that we want to act, but we need to understand how to communicate with the talent who has been through these acting classes. And sometimes this is the only language they speak. Well, you know what? Speaking of having different tools in your tool belt, I noticed Mm -hmm. looking at your bio and your IMDb page that you Mm -hmm. have so many skills in your tool belt. You have writer, director, producer, and as you said, editor. I mean, Mm -hmm. I would think that all those skills have really served you well over the years. Um, They they actually... It's, you know what, it's, it's funny you say that because I think all of those skills have finally come to a point where um, this year, like in uh, 2020, uh, my producing partner, Joyce Fitzpatrick, and I, we were able to go to AFM and we were able to sell um, the documentary, The Color of Medicine, that won at your film festival, and a feature film that we had done right after that, um, um, Hidden Orchard Mysteries. To be able to go to AFM for our first time and step up in there and meet with a number of distributors that we did face-to-face, um, yeah, I, I really think it's it was the experience of everything that we had done up to that point because I'd watched so many. Um, that was my first time going to AFM. And honestly, I don't think I had stepped into AFM because I wasn't prepared to uh, deal with the a level of business that needed to be dealt with because a lot of people would re- recommend you should get um, an aggregator or a distribution company to go up in there and sell your film to other uh, distributors. But I just, I personally don't like that idea because the moment when that person goes in, they're going in with four to five films to sell. The moment the person that they're talking to, they see that they aren't feeling the film that they're selling. They're going to move on to the next film. Me going in, I'm only pushing one film. So if I see that you're not into the film, I'm not changing the film. I'm changing the approach. 
And the best thing that I also, um, I've, I've learned that in going into films, cause I've been in so many rooms and I've heard so many no's and I've been in rooms where people have come in and pitched um, projects from scratch and I see what works. And these people that are giving out money, um, and I don't say this in a disrespectful way, but they're not visual. They're, they're, I mean, they're just, so they can't, when you're pitching your idea, what you're thinking they see or what you see is not what they see. They need to have something that they can physically put in and see what you're talking about. So the best piece of advice that I got going to AFM, and I heard this on a podcast, was to not create a trailer for the project, which is interesting because when we went in, that's the first thing everybody asked for. But I didn't have a trailer, but I did have a reel of selects. And selects where I just pulled pieces from scenes throughout the movie and I had 10 scenes from the color of medicine and 10 scenes from, um, hidden orchard mysteries. And when people watch those, that's where the responses went crazy. And we also took our, we had our own laptop so we could pop them up and play them. And they just couldn't believe one. The one thing that we got was, um, it first of all, cause some of the meetings coming in, it, it all boils down to, uh, independent black filmmakers and, and the quality, um, that they're bringing into. And we finally had some person cause the response that we were getting was odd and we couldn't understand what it was. And we finally had one person break it down to this, that they were like, you know what? We get so many black independent filmmakers that bring stuff in, but it's not on this level of quality. I wanted to pick up on that because yeah, I have seen a lot of films that, mm-hmm through just being a film critic, but also through the IC awards that mm-hmm. are not the level of quality that they need to be. And some people's right. feelings will get hurt. But I think that what you said is so important that the quality mm-hmm. is just paramount. You can't skimp on anything. And that goes, I would think, from the writing first. Of yes. course, then there's the producing and all that. But, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think you can stress that enough that you can't just make a film and then take it to AFM. It's got to be a quality product. That that that's very true. Because the the worst thing you could do is to take non quality uh, product in front of these people and expect to come back and have another meeting with them. Because the truth is, your first few are going to be bad. You have to get the bad ones out. Like this is not a one time or two time thing. That's why I always say filmmaking is a weeding out process. Because the one timers or the two timers are going to fall to the side. It's not the person that is working on his fifth or sixth or seventh project that goes through. You just never saw the first five or six. So you think you saw this one project and it was, he's an overnight success. No, he or she has been doing this all of this time, competitively, uh, I mean, repeatedly getting projects that sometimes didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But that's it's a learning process because one thing that I have learned is there's nothing that's ever a failure. It's, just, it's actually a process that's teaching you how to succeed. It just seems like it failed because it didn't give you the goal or the result that you wanted at that point in time. But it's a building block because honestly, walking in to AFM, I just I honestly felt like there was nobody who could go in um, aside from me and Joyce and sell this project better um, than we could. And it's just, uh, and also that, you know, the presentation, she's coming from the producing side. I'm coming from the director and creative side because we're not just trying to sell this project. We're selling, um, you know, the franchise of this project and what I've really learned and every filmmaker needs to understand this. When you're going into any company to any financer, when you're selling your film, you're not selling your film. Your film is the product. What you're selling is you. 
You want the person to fall in love with you because that's what they're investing in. They're giving the money to you to think that you can go do what you're saying you can do. Mm-hmm. That film is interchangeable. It should be this film. Now I have another film that I can do. Now I have another film that I can do. Now I have another film that I can do. The film is just the one commodity that you can constantly produce. But the product, the one thing that they're constantly investing in is you. It's the same thing with a distributor. When they're buying the film, they got to fall in love with you before they'll ever fall in love with your film. Whether it's your presentation or or, or it's making them feel like this is something that they need to watch or they're going to miss out. Mm-hmm. And speaking of people falling in love with you, I mean, mm-hmm. since you've had this success with The Color of Medicine and Hidden Orchard Mysteries, now you can mm-hmm. go back, I would think, and, and yes. talk to them about some new projects that you could be working on. Yes, yes, definitely. Actually, with the one um, distribution company that we um, dealt with, they've already given us our letter of intent to distribute. They want a part two for Hidden Orchard Mysteries, which we're actually in the process of um, writing. And then they also gave us a letter of intent to distribute another uh, family project along the lines of um, Hidden Orchard Mysteries for a script that we had for a while and have been trying to figure out how to get this film done and now have a distribution home. It's a film that actually was one of the top three finalists in the 2014. Um, mm. It was the up TV um, script writing family uh, friendly script writing contest at the American black film festival. Uh, one of our screenwriting partners, um, Wesley Doherty uh, wrote a script um, that him from a story him and Joyce uh, Fitzpatrick came up with called The Kid, and they submitted it, and it was one of the top three finalists. They flew him out to New York. Um, Charles Dutton and a who was it? Charles Dutton, um, Stephen Dizel, and um, Kimmy well, Kimmy Dalton Mitchell all came and did live readings of um, the top three finalists. So we've optioned that film, and then now that's the next thing on the slate that we would like to do alongside um, Hidden Orchard Mysteries. And then we all, you know, because we have stuff in every genre. We have stuff in the family genre. We have some stuff in the horror genre. And then I, I have some stuff that I would love to do also um, and in animation, because animation is a, a deep passion um, that I have as well. So it's just, again, you can never have enough tools in your tool belt. And I say that especially as an, not only as an independent filmmaker, but Unfortunately, you cannot separate being a minority that is an independent filmmaker. So as a a black male that's a a filmmaker, you cannot come in and just be just one thing. Because the one thing that, and it's funny because the one thing that I would always get is that I would need, everybody was trying to tell me you have to just focus on one thing because you're trying to do too many things and you'll never really be a master of any of those things. And I disagree with that because if I wasn't able to do all of those things, nothing would have gotten done. My path had to be that way. And I'll never forget when I got my first contract and they told me I had to pay E&O insurance, which is errors and emissions insurance, and I didn't know what that was. So I go to a seminar that I found online, and there's an attorney who's talking about errors and emissions insurance, and he's actually walking out the door, and he's signing uh, – you know, he's signing autographs and people are trying to ask him questions. And I just stood out and said, hey, um, I have a question about E&O insurance that this company wants me to pay for. What is E&O insurance? Mm-hmm. And he turned around and he was like, who said that? And I stood out and he was like, do you have a contract with you? And I had the contract in my hand and he took me over to the side. And he was like, first thing I'm going to tell you is there is no way you should have been able to do what you have done and have this contract in your hand. But since you do. I'm going to tell you right now what I charge people $500 an hour to tell them and broke down everything about, you know, insurance, what it was, what I need to do, who covered it. 
So I went back and called the distributor and we had the conversation about E&O and it was just a whole different conversation because he was just like, well, where'd you get out? Who, who have you been um, talking to? But for me, everything I've had to do has been that way. You have to educate yourself and it's an ever-changing game and to stay a part of it, you have to always be evolving also. There's always new editing tricks. There's always new cameras. There's always um, even a new lingo that uh, the actors are, are speaking on set. You have to constantly be evolving with it it's not it's think of it as a a, a living breathing thing it's always changing and that's honestly to me the beauty of it this comes to mind listening to you know everything that you've gone through to this point i mean Mm -hmm. it's obvious that it hasn't been easy and some of the things that you've done in your past i mean you worked for some pretty major outlets 20th century fox new line Mm -hmm. cinema i mean ryan seacrest Mm -hmm. And the list is very extensive. So what I would Mm -hmm. like to know, and I'm sure a lot of other independent filmmakers might want to know, is why did you want to become an independent filmmaker? Because you had a lot going for you. And then, you know, so so that's really, you know, why would you want to get out of that, quote unquote, comfort zone where you were, were doing so well to strike out on your own? Got you. Um, it, it's and I guess it's. <clears throat> excuse me. I when I, when I think of the word entrepreneur, I always think of people starting up their own businesses. But I actually remember the day that I decided to go um, and start doing stuff um, freelance, which was the beginning of uh, doing independent films. I realized also, I think it was a great thing being able to work at the New Line Cinemas. Um, um, and see from the inside how these films, you know, are getting pitched and what's getting greenlit and what isn't. And it was more or less not why, pro- I mean, what these projects were, but why projects were and seeing the networking. And it's really um, how it's really a, a people person business. There's really favors that are being done, seeing scripts that you thought were incredible sitting on the shelf and just seeing how some scripts would just be snatched off the shelf and made. But for me, I remember working, because I was working on this show for, um, what was it, 20th Century Fox. I was working for uh, Dish Nation. I worked on, it's funny, because I worked on Dish Nation for the first, Dish Nation is an entertainment, I don't know if it um, plays in your your area, but it's an entertainment news show based with um, radio personalities like yourself that do entertainment news. So they have like the Ricky Smiley show um, from Atlanta with a, um, Heidi and Frank from L.A., and then they used to have some other team um, from Dallas, but now it's just down to those two, and they do all the entertainment news back and forth. Um, I was there cutting that show from the inception till actually the show has moved out to Atlanta. Now I've cut all the way through like the seventh season because they would still call me back to come in. Hey, can you come fill in for a week? Can you come in and do some time here? Because uh, uh, another editor's out, and since you know the system, because it's daily entertainment news, you you got to be able to crank this stuff out. But I'll never forget where I was sitting. They had a big meeting, and because um, every year we didn't know if the show was going to get picked up, um, so every year we'd have that meeting, and the show would get picked up. And I'll never forget when it was going into close to its maybe fourth or fifth season, and uh, we were going into our five hundredth episode. And we got together and I was like, hey, we've done 500 episodes. And they gave us all um, certificates. They said, congratulations for your 500th episode. And I'll never remember when I walked out the building, I looked back up uh, and I looked up at the building and I realized your name is not on this building. So you're always going to be a worker bee because these producers and these execs for that 500th episode, oh, they got pay bumps. They got a lot of um, royalties and kickbacks from that. But as the editor, you got a certificate for being um, 
a good employee. At that point, I just realized from all the experience that I had and all that I've done and from all these companies, what if I took in all the time that I'm helping all of these other companies make money and invested it in what I'm doing mm. and work just for myself? Because I've built up enough clients. I just need some clients that are, it's the same Brian that's editing. I'm just not editing for this company now. I'm editing for myself. And it, you know, it takes some time because even in freelancing, I still had to go back at times to go to some of these companies and fill in because once you're, you know, in that system and you have some of these companies on your resume, you can always go to another company. Even if you're not cutting for that company, I can go to that company's competition and cut for them. But it's still, when I'm there, I'm trying to meet that person who's doing this and let them know, hey, I'm doing this, but I'm doing this for myself now. And in doing that, it gave me the free time to actually go pursue and do these other projects. I would never, every, what, was, what it was doing was burning me out because I would always take my vacation time and every job I had to go shoot a project. So I hadn't had a vacation in years because that two-week time, I had to go get a project done, whatever it was, what I was doing uh, for me. So I was either that, so I didn't have to shoot things on weekends. I could go, you know, just focus on um, the project. And just, I remember um, coming back and th- th- I got that, um, 500 um, episode certificate right around the time that they told us, hey, after Christmas break, your Christmas break is going to be cut in half. We need you to come back. Um, there's nobody's getting a pay bump, and it's just the same uh, schedule that we've had, but it's going to be a little bit harder now. And I was just, I was done. That was the first time actually in editing where I, I completely had hit a level of burnout. But it was really, you, it's time to redirect. Well, you know, when you said you got a certificate, I just knew you were going to say it was like a gift certificate or a no, prepaid no. visa. <laughs> no, no. Cause I'll, and I always equate that, and I'll never forget that feeling, because to me, honestly, the feeling was I felt, and it wasn't this, but I felt like, you know, when kids go to the zoo and they throw peanuts at the monkeys, that's exactly what I felt like. like but also... I realized that, hold on, the only difference between this is that monkey is trapped in his zoo. The front door is there. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, are you willing to walk out of it because you're losing that security of a weekly check coming in no matter what you know, all of that. Now the check comes in. That's the only thing about freelancing. You spend so much time selling yourself to people who don't know you because you've done this before. That part gets very uh, frustrating because you're constantly selling yourself and you're selling yourself for not this job and the next job, you know, the next three jobs ahead because this job may only be two weeks then this one's two months, then this one's, you know, another three weeks. But also it's the freedom of something new all the time. And it and paid you, off and you were prepared. Yes, 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 definitely. And if things ever got bad where nothing is happening in freelance, I could always jump back in the system and, hey, let me go do a show over here. And then find out, because in that show, you're always networking with other editors, find out what people are working on, because the next few jobs always go by um, word of mouth. I've gotten into, uh, you know, very good relationships with editors where there were for a while, you know, I would pass on, pass in jobs, and they were passing me on. There was a series of jobs that I didn't even apply for. It's just other editors I worked with were working there. They recommended me, and once you get that recommend, recommendation from somebody who's there, you're, you're in. That's the, one of the biggest things that I would say in filmmaking. Whether you're a director, hairdresser, PA, sound person, you got to have more people talking about you than just you. Mm-hmm. And you have to. Yeah, that that that's just like saying you need people. You need it's a people business, and you need good relationships. Yes. That that that's very very true. You because you shouldn't have to go into a room and tout what you can do. They should have heard that from somebody else. 
And a lot of times it'll be at a simple, people will be having a get together where I can't do this, this doesn't fit my schedule. Say, Hell, hold on. I know somebody who can do that. And it, so I never thought it would happen that way, but it has happened that way. Hey, such and such mentioned your name. I got this project. Would you be interested? And I've passed um, along a lot of editing things like that where it'll be someplace and their editor short. I know somebody we can call and come in right now. Mm-hmm. For people that want to get their foot in the door, editing is an excellent way to go. Yeah, editing is. It, it's it's a definitely it's a different uh, um, uh, approach into uh, the business, but it's one of those things that behind the camera that it can lead to a lot of uh, you know other things. And also, there are some editors that I know that don't want to do anything but edit. But they're editing major films now or major commercials. They have major accounts like editing for Nike. It's it's. Uh, it, I mean, when, when you start those editing rates, you're you're in a whole different level. Like you name your price, mm. because they're paying you for your expertise, and it's a different um, way to be a part of the the story making process. Because as an editor, you have so much control over crafting um, the story. It's just a, a realm that a lot of people never even consider. I wouldn't even think about editing. How do I get into it? And especially now, everybody can go buy a non-linear editing system for you know peanuts, or you don't even have to buy them now. Now you have your computer, and you just um, pay a licensing fee. Like with Adobe, I think it's twenty bucks a month just for Premiere. Mm-hmm. You can just download it and work from home and learn. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely, definitely. That and that's the biggest thing that helped me with um, COVID and everything happening where everybody was transitioning to working at home. Mm-hmm. I'd been working at home for three years before this had already happened. Wow. That's awesome. So it was, it was, it was unfortunate. I want to say comfortable for me. I, and it was basically also vindication to what I had been saying all the time. Why do we have to go into these companies to cut this? The problem was the companies aren't, weren't comfortable letting their footage and information go out to editors. So now when they had no other choice and realized now also with the advent in of um, the, the Internet and Internet speeds, they can set up a server and keep it at their place. And we can just download a file and work from home. Wow. Well, that's very interesting. I also want to get back to some of your projects, which is the color mm-hmm. of medicine and hidden orchard mm-hmm. mysteries. Because I think both of those projects need to be seen. They're quality product projects. They're you know quality meaning they're very well written. The um, the talent is amazing. The story and the color of medicine is just something that you know people need to see, especially if you want to know history, black history. That's a part of history. So tell yes. people out there, um, you know, what made you want to make that film? First of all. Um, it's funny, honestly, I'll, I'll be a hundred percent honest. I was hesitant in making that film when we first, when it first was brought to us, because we had just finished making another, we were li- literally coming out of one documentary, going into another one. Cause we had just finished a documentary called sunshine. It was in me, um, which wasn't, uh, we didn't get that released, but it actually did, um, win best documentary in two, um, film festivals. And it's about a, we follow a f- breast cancer survivor, who has, um, her husband was an expat. So she had to make the choice to basically uplift her life. And they moved, um, I think from, where were they at? Indian, Indianapolis. No, they were in Texas at the time and moved uh, to Singapore. And her life out there, because that was an amazing experience also to be able to go to Singapore and, um, and film there. We filmed in Singapore and in Malaysia. Yes, that's where we were, um, were at. 
Um, but coming out of that documentary and going right into this one, and the biggest, uh, another reason was that this didn't, there was no money. So I'm thinking, okay, here, how are we going to even tell this story, which I don't even really know what the story is and we have no money, but um, I had a chance to talk to one of the uh, key doctors in the film, Dr. Robinson, who our producing partner actually used to babysit his daughter. So that's how he had reached out um, to his daughter, and then his daughter reached back out to Joyce years later to present these chronicles. He had basically had a vlog that he had been keeping of everything and wanted to know if this, we could turn this into something more. When I read the vlog and then talked to Dr. Robinson, because again, with all the experience I have like in reality and being in these rooms, my whole thing is I'm thinking of, okay, if you're trying to do a project, well, who is this going to go to? Who's going to be a, a, interested in this? But when I read his story, I couldn't believe some of the stuff that I was reading. And I'm thinking, how come nobody knows about this stuff? Like, literally, when I was reading this vlog, I'm thinking, why are we the people being approached with this? This is a much bigger story. I would think this would be going to a much bigger um, production company. And once we started, um, we shot a actual a, a small piece with him, and we decided to go the uh, crowdfunding route. And we had done this before with a project we had tried to do with a comedy and failed. Again, when I say failing, learning how to succeed, learning what it takes to make a crowdfunding um, campaign work. And even though we didn't reach our full goal, we reached, um, we, the, one, the good thing is we uh, went with a company in the crowdfunding where it's not all or nothing because most of them like Kickstarter, if you don't get your full goal, you don't get any of that money. But with Indiegogo, you get to keep whatever you get and they just take a percentage of that. So we got enough to actually start, um, start the production. But what, again, made me want to be a part of it was talking to Dr. Robinson and then talking to some of these other doctors and nurses that were a part of the story and realizing that there were all these incredible um, black men and women who have done amazing things in the medical field that nobody knows anything about. Mm-hmm. I mean, not not a you would you're not going to find them in any uh, books any anywhere. You would just know nothing about them. That's why I'd always I've always said like this is the hidden figures of medicine. And the thing that really uh, spurred me was every uh, individual we talked to was at least in their late sixties, seventies, eighties. We've actually three of the doctors have passed since um, the filming and the and the interviews. It was just literally like if we don't tell this story nobody um, uh, will tell it. And the story just became something much bigger uh, than we were anticipating at the time. And I'll never forget when we talked to Dr. Will Ross um, at um, St. Louis uh, University, who was a very you know integral part of, of the story. He's a historian. He had a whole um, series that he would put on about um, Homer G. Phillips Hospital and, and the area that we covered in the color of medicine. And he was actually saying that he was the only person who was attempting on doing a film about um, the hospital. And the only reason his efforts didn't go through because the um, director he was using, um, who was a friend of a, uh, one of his, a friend of his, who was an author had passed. So when his son passed, the idea just, you know, fell to the side and he was very reluctant when we first, you know, went to go talk to him about this. We had to do so much vetting because we're LA filmmakers going to tell a story about a historical area in St. Louis. We had to get St. Louis to accept us and open up to tell us the story before we could do anything. And that took a lot of uh, chiseling uh, to go do. So it was almost like the more you researched, the more you found out that 
this nugget of gold that you're going for is much bigger than you ever anticipated. And it just kept pulling you in more and more. And I'm all uh, about story uh, telling. And I would say, honestly, from going through that uh, process, especially the last two documentaries, documentary storytelling makes you a better narrative film uh, storyteller as well. Because in narrative film, you already know I got an hour and a half to tell uh, this story and you just hit all these points. When you have a documentary, especially, we were covering from 1937 to 19, uh, 1937 to 19, uh, what was it, 1970, 1970. Um, no, 1975. Um, and to tell that in a, what, two-hour um, documentary. And I re- remember our, my process is always, um, we put everything out on post-it notes and put it up on the wall. And you can look at your story because what you're doing, basically, it's a visual editing process because it, a lot of times instead of going and cutting stuff and seeing how it's going to look, I can just move post-it notes on the wall and see if it's going to work or not work. And you also start to see um, associations. You start to see where similarities and also you see things that are standing out like this doesn't make sense. It doesn't go with um, everything else. But seeing everything laid out that way is visually how I work. And just looking at that wall, I remember so many nights staring at that thinking, how is this ever going to get done? But like everything gets done, and I'll never forget um, uh, the director from Black Panther said this. You know, he's like, this is the biggest film that I've ever done. But like every film, it starts with just doing the first scene. Mm. You do your first setup, and then you do your second setup. Because if you think about it as an entire project, like looking at this documentary, thinking of it as, oh, my God, an entire two-hour documentary in the historical context. No, we're going to go do this interview with this doctor. Then we're going to go do this interview with this doctor. Then we're going to cut this scene. You just have to break it down into smaller pieces. It's like when you go up a hill, sometimes you just got to look down at the, the five, ten feet in front of you instead of looking up at that hill because the hill you're looking up, you're going to, your mind is going to tell you you can't make it all the way up there. Mm-hmm. But if I just look at the five feet in front of me and conquer that and then look at the next five feet, I can do that all the way up to the top. Well, I'm sure you've piqued a lot of people's interest. So how can the public support that project as well as your others? Mm-hmm. Um, well, both of those projects on the cover of medicine is uh, playing right now on all of your streaming services. It's on Fandango, uh, Voodoo, um, Amazon. It's not on, um, the only service that it's not on is on Netflix. It's on Netflix and, I'm sorry, Netflix and Hulu. Um, it's on Google Play. It's on your Xbox uh, services, on iTunes, um, um, as, as well as Hidden Orchard Mysteries, both of those. And at this point, before... I mean, both of the films can be purchased, but if you have the service, um, they should be included with your um, service now as well. Um, like if you're an Amazon Prime member, you can watch it now uh, from free. If you're a Fandango member, if you're an iTunes Plus member, and also on your cable services, on demand, whatever your cable streaming service is, if you go through on demand, you'll be able to find um, the Color of Medicine and Hidden Orchard Mysteries. And we're really trying to push the Color of Medicine now with Black History Month um, coming up. Um, We have some avenues to possibly get it um, streaming on um, television. We're trying to get it on Aspire Network or TV One um, because at this point, I think in our distribution deal, we're now crossing over to where we can go to um, to television. But it's definitely um, something even with with COVID that has definitely kept it around. But with COVID and Black History Month, um, there's, again, the conversation of this hospital and the story because it's really, again, like I always say, the, sto- the hospital is the background. It's really about these amazing black um, men and women and the amazing um, 
sacrifice that they made and the intellect that they achieved to accomplish what they were able to accomplish. Because to have this hospital and this structure run entirely by an all-black staff and be the number one hospital in the world and nobody know about it is unheard of. Right. Well, Brian, I have to say, I have learned so much from you today. And (laughs) it's just been so enlightening and informative and inspiring. So I really appreciate you for being here. I'm sure everybody out there listening feels the same way. So I just want to say, yeah, congratulations on all your success thus far and everything you've done. I mean, you prove that hard work does pay off perseverance. You just have to hang in there and go for what you want. and, And it can happen. So thanks so much for sharing your story. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you uh, for having me. And my last bit of advice to any independent filmmaker out there, um, never be afraid to invest in in yourself. Because a lot of times you'll come across, uh, even uh, I've had distributors or uh, financiers I've approached saying, I'll invest in you, what you've invested in yourself. Oh, I'm glad you said that, because this is what I've invested in me. Now put the money up. But if you don't invest in yourself, how can you expect others to invest in you? And you are your most valuable commodity. Mm. Wow. I don't think it could have been any said any better than that. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This was, this was so much fun. Oh, thank you. And to everyone out there listening, thank you so much for tuning in. I'll be sure to include the information on how you can reach Brian in the show notes. So if you like more information or you'd like to reach out to him, that's how you can do it. Thanks again for joining me today and be sure to tune in again next time.